Artificial intelligence is certainly grabbing the headlines, but is it really safe? And is it for the better? Welcome to a special edition of With Not For. My name is Manisha Amin from the Centre for Inclusive Design, and what you are about to hear is part one of a panel discussion harnessing artificial intelligence for good. We recorded it earlier this year on Gadigal land in Sydney. The discussion was part of Sydney of Sydney's Visiting Entrepreneurs Program in conjunction with the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion at the University of Technology Sydney and, of course, the Centre for Inclusive Design. Before we begin, an apology. The quality of the audio isn't great, but what's being said is really important. So welcome to part one. The first person you'll hear is Professor Verity Firth, Pro Vice-Chancellor, Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion at UTS. So it's an honour today to welcome a really great set of speakers. I'll start with Donna Sarkar. Donna Sarkar is the Director of Technology at Microsoft Accessibility. Donna's current focus is using AI inclusively to ensure Microsoft products are usable by people with disabilities, neurodiversity and mental health concerns. Welcome, Donna. Ed Santo is an industry professor and the Director of Policy and Governance at the UTS Human Technology Institute. From 2016 to 2021, Ed was Australia's Human Rights Commissioner, where he led major projects in the areas of new technology and human rights, LGBTI rights, refugees and migration. Welcome, Ed. And Wayne Hawkins is the Director of Inclusion with the Australian Communications Consumer Action Network. Wayne joined ACAN in 2010 and has led ACAN's work on telecommunications access for consumers with disability, broadcast television access for people with disability and emergency services. Welcome, Wayne. And finally, I'd like to introduce our facilitator for the discussion today. Manisha Armin is the CEO at the Centre for Inclusive Design. Welcome, Manisha. Thank you, Verity. It's such a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to be here with everyone on this call. Um, I'd also just like to acknowledge any First Nations people on this call here today. What we'd like to do today is really focus on how we can make the world a better place and what we need to do from a human perspective to make sure that AI actually works for us and with us, not against us. And I think one of the interesting things about this is, you know, when we think about AI or technology, I think it's only as good as the humans that are wielding that technology and creating that technology. So my first question um, to you, Wayne, is really around when we think about this notion of harnessing AI, who do you think about and who do you want it to be good for? And how do you focus your work in that area? Um, thanks, Manisha. Um, just a quick thank you for being invited to participate. It's really uh, a great pleasure to be able to participate in, in this discussion today. Um, getting to the question, I think, you know, from, from my uh, professional role as um, a member of ACAM, which is a consumer representative body, um, you know, I think primarily when I think of AI and um, harnessing AI for good, you know, I, I think in the terms of all consumers and all end users, um, you know, so that so that AI benefits us as a community um, without 
you know, having those harms that, you know, most of us are aware of the, the potential harms that can come from that. Um, as, as the director of inclusion at ACAN and somebody who lives with a disability as a person who's blind, you know, my focus is also on, you know, how can we harness technology to improve the lives of people with disability? Um, you know, when I say that, I, I also mean seniors who have age-related impairments and who may not identify as people with disability but can benefit from the same assistive services or accessibility features. Um, and, and I think there's two parts of this for me. Um, one is about, you know, the, the end user services and products. And then there's a second piece about AI, which is a sort of broader community society question about the decision-making aspects of artificial, artificial intelligence. Um, so, so just focusing on the assistive part of it for end users, you know, there's such great potential with the emerging technologies for everybody, but specifically for people with disability, it can be really transforming in their lives. You know, my own experience using, um, I use seeing AI, which uh, is a Microsoft developed um, app for people with vision impairment, which I can use to uh, get around, find my way, which is, you know, remarkably helpful. Um, I also use the benefit of, of speech recognition software, um, which you know, sometimes that's helpful and sometimes I end up yelling at the machine because it doesn't understand what I said. Um, but you know the, the benefits of that in, in the context of like home assistance for people with disability are just profound. You know, the, the, the way that that can really change somebody's life by having that capability embedded in their home to make their lives better. Um, and, you know, I, I think in that context, you know, really what we need to do is make sure that the people who are developing that really are looking at co-design, you know, so people with impairments are being used in the discussions and development of the products, um, a human rights approach, so that, you know, they understand that, you know, by making these products um, usable for all, you know, everybody's um, human rights helps enable everybody's human rights. And I and I also think that um, one of the key aspects of what needs to happen and, uh, and what a big focus needs to be is an education across the whole AI ecosystem. Um, so that the developers, the coders, everybody who's involved in creating new technologies understands that everybody has to be included, not just the typical consumer, but all consumers. Um, so that's what my interest is in this. And, uh, you know, it's I see huge possibilities, but um, I'm also very aware that there are potential issues that need to be um, acknowledged and addressed if everyone's going to benefit. Thank you, Wade. And Donna, from your perspective then, um, within Microsoft, who do you actually look at when you're thinking about um, harnessing AI for good? Um, and, and what's the focus in your world? Um, first, Wayne, thank you so much for your comments because I'm sitting here nodding aggressively because I agree with everything you're saying. Um, my work specifically is I head up the inclusive AI program for Microsoft, and that includes 
a big spectrum of things. And the area that I am personally very invested in is around accessibility. And that includes people with disabilities, folks who are blind, folks who are deaf, limited mobility, speech impediments, whether they're born with it or something we age into, right? Because both of these things are true. And we are all going to develop a disability at some point or another through accident, age, just existing the human condition. Um, so that's one thing. The other part is looking at neurodiversity, which I am neurodivergent. I'm dyslexic. And a very large percentage of the tech, the tech industry is neurodivergent. Uh, folks have ADHD, autism, dyslexia, very, very common. I would say it's about 50%. And then, of course, folks with mental health conditions. And around the pandemic, it became very obvious how many of us do live with the mental health condition, whether it's temporary or situational or permanent, um, whether it's social anxiety, seasonal depression, et cetera. So the gamut of accessibility needs is way broader than what I think we think of as a society because we think of it as a visible disability, but most disabilities, 80% are invisible. So as we build products, it's so important to keep this in mind. Um, there are four roles that I like people to play when building AI products. And this is how we do it at Microsoft. It's how we do it on our team. The first role is actually the uh, AI or machine learning expert. They are extremely good at identifying the models that need to be trained, training the models, fine tuning the models, identifying how the model works. So this is someone who's deep in calculus. They probably have been doing this work and 20, 30 years. This is a very large percentage of people in the world. I am not from this world, to be clear. But we, we need diversity of people with disabilities to play these kinds of roles. The good news is neurodivergent people do extremely well at these kinds of roles. So that's good. Second part are the actual business expert. Like what problem are we trying to solve with our AI? Like for example, when you talked about uh, seeing AI, the business problem there is how can blind people see the world autonomously? So that is the business problem. The person who understands the problem best is a blind person. So we need to make sure that the product management teams either have blind folks on them or consult with blind folks on what are some of the key scenarios you have. Reading backs of medication, looking at food labels in grocery stores. These are just some ways that blind folks can live autonomously without having to rely on a sighted assistant. The third person are the product makers. And these are the actual individual uh, designers, developers, testers, data scientists who sit down, fingers to keyboard or voice to keyboard, and they build the products. This is where the largest percentage of Microsoft lives because we are a company of 100,000 developers and product makers. And we have a very large number of people with disabilities within our product teams um, by design. Because the more people you have with disabilities in your product team, the better that product is going to be for everyone. And then the fourth one is a new role that is very important for AI, which is the validator, the deployer and the teacher. They're the people who take the AI product and teach the general population how to use it. They make sure that this AI is not biased. This AI is citing correct sources. This AI is actually solving that problem we identified in step two, and that people understand how to use it to solve their specific problem. This fourth role, I think, is incredibly interesting for people with disabilities because I would rather have a blind person, such as folks on my team, teach other blind people how to use AI than me. I shouldn't be in that business. I am better at teaching other dyslexic people how to use uh, GPT products than other dyslexic people. So I really, truly believe we need more representation in these kinds of roles, whether you work for a company or whether it's something you do independently to 
play a role. But honestly, everyone has a role to play in the AI-verse. And it has nothing to do with whether you're a computer scientist or a data scientist by design. You have to have a keen and passionate curiosity about how this works and be in a place where you're ready to bring your full self to the table to be able to make these products really and truly usable for our global community. Thank you, Donna. And we're going to come back to some of those points a little bit um, as we go through this conversation as well. But first, I'd like to move to Ed with the same question, really, in terms of the work you do, the work you've done, but also the work you're now doing in really um, focusing on where that biggest gap is and and the work you do in in resolving that. Um, Well, thank you very much for having me, Manisha. And I'd endorse everything that has just been said um, by Donna and by Wayne. Um, So when we talk about wanting AI to be good for everyone, um, that too often is code for actually being just good for me. And I I actually mean that very specifically. I mean, people who look just like me, white, middle-aged men um, without an obvious disability, um, who are middle class, who basically the entire world seems to be designed for. I'm very fortunate to be in that position, but it's it's not very helpful, right? Because uh, when when we, when we use that um, kind of heuristic or shorthand, uh, that's that means that people continue to be left out. So it's um, taking that approach, um, I think, that Donna laid out, which is being quite systematic and rigorous about how you um, zero in on people who are not me um, and um, bring those different perspectives into the design and development process. Um, how do you talk more about the work that we're currently doing. Uh, and, and, and and I do want to kind of take up that opportunity, but but I just want to go back into recent history a little bit and think, uh, reflecting a little bit on some of the work that I did two roles mm. ago when I was a human rights lawyer, so before being commissioner. Um, did a lot of work with people with disability. And um, a couple of the cases that were particularly important that we took were cases against Australia's two biggest uh, supermarket chains. Um, so they moved on to online shopping, which of course is very important. Um, they they saw this um, rightly, perhaps as a central boon for um, people with disability who couldn't um, easily go physically into their supermarkets and, and do their shopping there. But what we what we found was that they were both um, not accessible to websites, right, for people who are blind or have a vision impairment. Um, so we, you know, do what we like to do, which is to say, well, you know, this is some um, bit like a mafia kind of approach. Yeah, this is a this is your opportunity to to fix things up before we take you to court. Um, we ended up having to go to court. Um, that was that, and we won. Um, but the really interesting part of this story was that um, one of those big supermarket chains said, "Well, look, you know, we, we've learned our lesson, right? We we totally get this now." And we're going to be laser focused on, 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 on making sure that we're accessible from now and forever. But that's not what happened. Um, what ended up happening was that there was a staff, key staff member who left the team and we had to run the case all over again. It really felt like Groundhog Day because with a later upgrade of their website, it then became clear that, that the, the same problems had set back in again. Um, the reason I'm telling this slightly boring um, law war story um, is because um, it is that rigorous approach. Um, these problems, as we see them, are socio-technical. 
Um, they are perhaps more socio than technical. It is about um, that 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 um, kind of pro- approach that particular Don- Donna was outlining, where you need to get the right people in the right room. You need to have a really clear process to make sure that they're heard, that you're kind of um, engaging the the insights and 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 making sure that they're real. So. Um, what I was talking about there is not fancy new AI. It was as something as boring and simple as a website, but it, the principle is the same, and we need to continue to take those lessons, learn from them, and apply those principles as AI becomes kind of all around us. Thanks so much, Ed. And I want to continue from that point, actually, because I think that um, it brings up one of these really interesting issues around some of the pitfalls that come not just with technology but also with AI. And um, it's not one of the the questions that we were thinking about asking, but it just seems to me that both yourself and Donna have touched on something really important here, which is how do we fix something when it's not right? Um, And it seems to me, just listening to your story as well, that often when there's a problem and, um, you know, we do a whole lot to fix that problem, but then when we think about, you know, agile systems and cascading workflows and all of those people working in technology, it's very easy for the system to almost bounce back to solving for someone who looks like yourself. And so what are some of the things that you think about in this area that need to be considered, Ed, when um, you're looking at um, developing AI technologies? I mean, happy to take a first stab at that. The starting point is that I think we've reached the end of the road with um, kind of high-level, vague ethics principles, right? Mm. We've we've had lots of those over the last um, few years, and they all say things that are pretty similar and are pretty unobjectionable. Um, So they often have do no harm, respect privacy, think about diversity. All of those things, as I say, I, I wouldn't disagree with any of them, but they're all hopeless in the sense that when you actually look at the empirical data, they don't have any discernible impact or the vast, vast majority of them have no discernible impact. And so I just want to be really clear. That's not the way of doing it. The, the way of doing it is to is to kind of approach it like every other field of endeavour. And for some reason, we sometimes put technology in a separate category. It's not, right? Um, and AI specifically is not. What we need to do is we need to look really carefully at how um, technology or particular product or service can engage people's human rights. Um, You start with a big list, but usually it boils down to a much smaller list. Um, And and then kind of ask the question, starting with the law, how do we stay on the correct side of the law here? How do we make sure that what we're doing is not going to be discriminatory on the basis of someone's disability or their race or their age or whatever. Um, and those questions can be quite difficult. And I guess that the, the, there's, a, there's a little point that I just quickly want to make here, which is that um, when you have those multidisciplinary teams, again, um, as, as Donna was outlining, they can be especially difficult. I can't tell you the number of times that I, as a boring lawyer, have um, kind of irritated the kind of more technical engineer, the data scientists, the machine learning types so much by saying, well, look, I'm sorry, there's a bit of grey here because eventually every conversation ends with someone banging their shoe on the table and just saying, enough, stop going on about it and just tell me what is the number. 
I remember the first time I had this conversation, I said, what do you mean? What's the number? And, and they said, well, if you want to make sure that 50% of our customers are male and 50% are female, X number you know, of, of um, home loan applicants have a disability, we can do that tomorrow. We can do that like in 10 seconds. We just change the parameters. Um, and unfortunately, it's often not that simple. Um, so there are some things that are absolutely clear cut, black and white, and then there are other things that are that actually require some careful thinking. So if you boil all of that down, there's ethics, which has been useful perhaps in one thing, which is to kind of raise people's awareness of, of what's going on here. There's the law, which we need to be much more focused on. What are the actual legal requirements? And then the little caveat to that is sometimes in applying the law, particularly in the area of disability discrimination, there is some grey area and that's not susceptible to a simple arithmetic solution sometimes. Sometimes it requires some very, very careful working through in those multidisciplinary teams. And Donna, I'd like your view on this same question because I think uh, what Ed's brought up is really important and this, this notion of how we do it and how not just how we bring the right people into the room, but what happens when there's a problem? What happens when that complaint hits and things have to be redone? What do we do then? Uh, this is so good because this is the literal conversation we have on our team. Um, and and uh, Ed, I'm laughing because I work with all lawyers too. And I, this is me. I'm like, what is the percent accuracy we need to hit? Give me the number and I'll get you there. And they were like, oh, it depends. I said, I don't understand this question. Like, what do you mean? Because engineers, it's like, give me a number, I'll hit the number. Lawyers are like, it really depends on what you're doing and the law. And the, I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. So um, I'm a firm believer in lawmakers, but lawmakers in the US really struggle with technology and making technical laws, right? Because they don't quite understand like how it's made. So sometimes the laws come into, like you remember when Italy banned ChatGPT randomly, right? They said, oh, it's banned. And of course, every Italian youth figure out a way to VPN and use it anyway, which is what's going to happen. Just outright banning things, it just does not work, uh, especially for technical things, because young people will find a way and everyone will. Um, I've seen that happen in every country that ever bans things. But to answer your question, Manisha, um, I, I very dramatically wrote these four things up here and I'm going to read them to you because I wanted to make sure I didn't forget. Um, there are four things to keep in mind when we are building an AI product, okay? And we revisit them over and over again throughout the product lifecycle from ideating the thing, ide just coming up with the concept, to coming up with the first, to come, doing the research, ideating, designing the first version, developing a prototype, testing it, and then going all the way back, right? So we go through it over and over and over again. It's repetitive. And we do this for every AI product we built at Microsoft, which is in the hundreds, probably more. So the very first one that, you know, I talked about excessively is the team, making sure we have diversity in the team of those four roles. The second one is the core center part of AI is the data. So what data are we using? Is the data clean? Is it organized? Is it accurate? Do we have the right sources? And if we can't say we trust these data sources to give us good information, then we're not building a product. So but for can, example. Yeah, can uh, I ask a question around that? I'm going to interrupt you a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Is when we think about what clean data is and when we're talking about diverse communities and vulnerable communities, what does clean mean to you? 
right? Because sometimes the only people with fantastic clean data, and sorry, Ed, I'm going to use you now through this whole presentation, um, but sometimes the people with the clean data, the great data, are people like Ed, um, not necessarily the people who are on the edge, the vulnerable communities, the marginalised communities, the people who are homeless. So how, what does clean mean to you in that scenario? The issue we have is that the data set is not big enough. So for example, and we just went through this, so I'm so excited we're having this conversation. Um, there's a company called Be My Eyes. And um, Wayne, you may know about this company, but it's it's a service where a blind person can call and say, I need to talk to a human because I'm looking, pointing my cell phone at a thing and I need someone to tell me what it says. So they work with a team of volunteers all around the world. I volunteered for this. It's like, we're looking at a refrigerator. Uh, there's a carton of milk and it's expired two days ago. Do not drink this. So it's really like a representative data set of things that blind people are interested in. Okay. So again, it's a data set, but it's not a huge data set. What we need to do when we build an AI product is weight this data set higher than the general data set if we're building a product that has to work well for people with disabilities. And we know how to do that. We know how to say, let's prioritize this data set and let's factor it into the next version of GPT, which we did. Um, Be My Eyes was actually bought by OpenAI to up their disability data set because OpenAI knew and acknowledged, oh, our uh, blind data set is not good. Like it kind of sucks. So by buying Be My Eyes and their data set, they're able to like get a much better representative of what blind people are looking for. This is going to be the same thing for voice, right? People who maybe have ALS are losing their voice. People who um, are dyslexic and what do you, just does the word look like for dyslexic people? So there are data sets that exist and where there are not, we have to grow those. This is where we need people with disabilities to play roles in that first area of being involved involved with AI and machine learning. So first category is making sure your data is clean, it's organized, and it's accurate. It does not need to be the world's biggest data set because we can weight it more and make it more important. The second thing is context. We really, I, I'm a huge fan of scoping AI projects. Mm. But like, oh, let's use GPT-4, which is an enormous large language model, foundation model, to solve all of our life's problems. And I said, what are you trying to do? So if I'm building, say, an accessibility bot, and all I want to do is answer accessibility questions, what I would do in code is use the prompt parameter and say, only answer accessibility questions. Stay in character. Do not answer questions about anything else. I would give the system that command so my bot wouldn't be giving legal advice or be giving like medical advice or writing poetry or thinking about its existence. All it would do is answer accessibility questions. And we have that ability through the prompt mechanism, as well as the temperature mechanism. The lower the temperature, temperature parameter zero to one, one is like, be creative. That's right, haikus and like brainstorm with me. Temperature zero is answer the question, cite the sources. That's where I would keep it. So I would be very specific with the context, like only accessibility, keep the temperature zero, don't get creative, answer the question. And then the third thing, that I think is really important and people don't do enough use, is use the moderation endpoints. Now, every AI product has moderation endpoints that once the answer is generated, you can actually use post-processing moderation to say, should these results show up or be adjusted in any way before they're presented to the audience? Now, we had a major win recently because I'm very annoying. Um, and we were able to go and influence positively the AI builder people 
to include disability bias into the moderation endpoints for GPT-4. And there is a difference between GPT-3 and GPT-4 in terms of moderation endpoint because it did not used to have disability bias and now it does. So you're going to see a difference in the results with GPT-3 and GPT-4 when it comes to disability. But that's what it takes. It takes people like us who do live with the disability to be that last role, right, which is the validators, the trainers, the testers, to say, these aren't good answers. I'm going to need you to change this. And the way we're going to do it is through all of these steps, the data, the actual context, as well as the moderation. Thank you for listening to part one of our special presentation, Harnessing Artificial Intelligence for Good. Until next time, I'm Manisha Amin from the Centre for Inclusive Design.